0: Politics ain't beanbag, okay? And everybody in the country who engages
1: in politics knows that. From WNYC and New Jersey Public Radio, it's the Christy Tracker Podcast. I was blindsided yesterday morning. I am embarrassed
0: and humiliated. I am heartbroken. I'm heartbroken about it, and I'm incredibly disappointed. I am who I am, but I am not a bully.
1: I'm David First, and today we present Bridgegate-Palooza, a wrap-up of the political retribution scheme that derailed the rising star of the National Republican Party and ended, we thought, the political future of Chris Christie. Maybe he rises again. We are recording this on Tuesday morning, November 15th, as we wait to hear what, if any, position the governor will be given in the Trump administration. Joining us to help wrap up coverage of the Bridgegate saga, we are here with a group of reporters who covered this story as it unfolded. We have Sean Boberg, formerly with The Record, now with The Washington Post. Heather Haddon and Ted Mann with The Wall Street Journal. Back for more, Tom Moran, The Star-Ledger's editorial page editor. And, of course, WNYC's Andrea Bernstein and Matt
2: Katz. Welcome.
3: Hey, David.
2: Thanks, David. All the Bridgegate journalist celebrities of sorts.
3: I feel more cheerful already to be in such good company.
2: Sean
1: Boberg, you were part of a team at the record that uh, helped break the story of uh, these mysterious lane closures at, at the George Washington Bridge that were thought to be a political payback scheme. Uh, take us behind the scenes while you were working on this. What were the big tips that helped you discover what was going on here?
0: Well, the first indication that anything was amiss was, of course, uh, John wrote the Road Warrior column, columnist for the record, uh, posing the question um, the day that the the lanes were reopened, whether this was political retribution. And the story sort of simmered for a couple of months, partly uh, because an election was near. But behind the scenes, I mean, I can tell you that from the earliest days, our executive editor, Marty Gottlieb, came over to me and said, you know, there's this theory out there that this was political retribution. Is this even possible? And I told him, yeah, you know, I mentioned David Wildstein's name. We we had written a profile of him and his antics previously were were documented well-known within the agency. This had his fingerprints all over it. It just bubbled out from there and I think the, you know, obviously the the key moment here is when the subpoenas are issued and David Wildstein makes this calculation that he's going to turn over all these explosive emails and text messages, and it just unraveled from there.
1: David Wildstein, of course, the uh, former Port Authority official who later pled guilty to the Bridgegate scheme, and you broke the story revealing Bridget Kelly's time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee email.
0: Yeah, that was, that, that was a January morning. We're, we're approaching, what, three years now. You know, it's so distant, but so much has happened. I called her that morning, by the way, and reached her on her cell phone, and I think she was on her way to work. I posed uh, the the text of the email to her and asked her for a response, and she said she was literally on a conference call and she would have to call me back. Uh, and she said she would do that later. In the day, and now with all the the emergence of all the the correspondence and the emails going back and forth behind the scenes within the Christie administration, we now know that that was never really the plan, and of course, it didn't happen.
3: So, when did you first see that email, and, and what did you think when you saw it?
0: I first saw that email probably. 12 hours before we published. I was up all night the previous night writing. There was a release of the documents planned that day. It was under embargo, I believe, for 9 a.m. I had already seen the email, but I also confirmed the contents of the email independently from separate sources, which allowed us to break it early.
3: Tell us a little about like your emotional reaction when you read it.
0: So, without um, revealing sources, I can tell you that for everyone who read it, including people in the newsroom, there was a sense of wonderment like could this be real this on its face, this document seems to indicate that this was it confirms the, the wildest theories about this and I think some people thought you know is this a trap it could why would David Wildstein turn this over doesn't this seem to implicate him could this be read different ways so there was this this duality of well, this appears to be a smoking gun but what are we not seeing here and ultimately I think you know this issue came up at the trial the document sort of speaks for itself and and is open to, I think, limited interpretation. And so we just published it and let it speak for itself. But obviously, when we first saw it, we were really surprised.
1: Hey, hey, Tom Moran, working at the Star-Ledger, when did you know that something was going on here, not not just a regular traffic jam in Fort Lee? Uh,
4: after I read Sean Burberg and listened to WNYC, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I mean, this was... Uh... You know, that email broke it open. So you figure the the lane closings were in September and that email, that was January 8th, I think, right, Sean? Yeah. It was the day before he had that January 9th press conference saying I was blindsided by this.
0: I was done with my workout yesterday morning and got a call from my communications director at about 8.50, 8.55, informing me of this story that had just broken on the Bergen Record website. That was the first time I knew about this.
4: So it's a four month stretch, right? And during that period there were several breaks in the story that made it more and more real. At first it seemed almost too bizarre to imagine. And gradually it began dawning on people, culminating in that January 8th story that Sean was just talking about, where, oh, my God, they actually did this. They actually endangered people's health, and people lost job interviews and doctor's appointments just to exact revenge. It still remains the most sort of bizarre political story uh, that, uh, in modern New Jersey political history, obviously.
2: At least that doesn't involve sex. <laughs>
4: As bad as that email is, is it wrong that I'm smiling the second email was even more damaging in the trial, I thought, than time for some traffic problems. Kelly had a sort of implausible explanation that, oh, that's the way David and I talk, time for traffic problems. We said that on all the traffic studies. It was a stretch, but is it wrong that I'm smiling she just got killed on? That one indicated that almost you're taking joy in the, in the uh, inflicting punishment.
2: But at the time, the time for some traffic problems email was the one that indicated there was an order from the governor's office and subpoena power from the legislature was running out in just a few days. And this is what kept the legislative investigation alive. In the moment, that was a bigger deal. And Sean, I remember you telling me when a uh, I interviewed you for my book about Christie and Bridgegate at a diner, appropriately enough. And you, you told me something about how like there was, there was something with the, the bridge and Bridget, the fact that the woman responsible's name has a bridge in her name. Didn't you get a hint of that before you got the email or that would, there was some question about it in your mind, whether this could be real given that she has bridge in her name?
0: Yeah, so we got the actual email the previous night, but I had it from sources off the record that this email with mysterious contents but seemingly damning was out there and that it was sent by a female within the you know the top echelon of Christie's inner circle. So there was this little parlor game going on with a couple of sources where they wouldn't say the name, and at first, you know, I was guessing, like, the lieutenant governor, and it was no, I can't say. And then ultimately, I mean, the the tip-off, although this wasn't enough confirmation, was, you know, I said to the person, does this email by chance come from someone with the word bridge in her name? And there was there, there was just a, uh, an affirmative laugh. Obviously, that wasn't enough to go on. But that that occurred probably, you know, my memory's uh, a little bit uh, faded, but probably four or five days before we actually reported on, on the actual email. We just needed to firm that up.
3: When we ask somebody something and we're right, you frequently get mm, a pause, you get Who told you that? Which is almost always means like (laughs) you're right or maybe you get silence. It is a form of great encouragement.
1: What was your relationship like with David Wildstein after you broke that story? Time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee. You continued to be in contact with him, didn't you?
0: No, no, I didn't. I think what came out at trial was that the day he resigned, we met in a diner, which is
2: true. (laughs) Can you tell us what diner? Can you please tell us what diner? I'm just so curious. Well, you know,
0: so I have to walk a fine line. Actually, I would love to talk about that conversation and any other off-the-record conversations I may have had with him prior to that. Uh, And I actually reached out to his attorney after he spoke about this in the trial and said, Said, you know, will you waive our agreement on off-the-record discussions? And he said he would not. So I'm going to honor my end of the deal there. But I can tell you that it's true that we met in a diner. It's also true that, you know, in the weeks following, we wrote stories that showed that David Wildstein and Bill Baroni knew of the horrific uh, congestion that this was going to cause through emails and documents we got internal documents that we got um, and still and did it anyway
1: now we have uh, ted mann and heather haddon of the wall street journal on the line ted and heather you were also doing a lot of early reporting on this story ted when you first heard about these weird traffic jams going on in fort lee what tipped you off that there was something else going on
5: um the first conversation i had about this was the friday that the the closures ended and a source of mine called me and said something very weird is happening. We met and walked over the Brooklyn Bridge, and that was the first time I found out about the Pat Foy email that, that would only come out a lot later, where it was very clear that this was not a dispute over how well some sort of traffic study had been handled. It was a much a uh, graver allegation of misconduct inside the authority, and, and you had a high-ranking official telling everyone else that someone had broken the law.
6: I still remember when Ted came into the office and he had just had some covert meeting with some port authority, uh, you know, just not a political appointee, someone who was actually working on the more uh, administrative uh, engineering side. And I started calling around to some local officials representing North Jersey, that section of Port Lee, who also just thought this was the strangest thing they had ever heard, and one of them eventually came back to me with the letter that Mark Sokolich had sent to Bill Baroni, just desperate for help, uh, saying, "You know, how can you do this to us? What have I done to offend you?" And that's when it did start to take on a, you know, a, a different nature that we were starting to realize that perhaps there was something. Much larger to this.
1: All right. But when you told your bosses at the Wall Street Journal, hey, I want to do this story on a traffic jam, what kind of response did you get?
5: <laughs> oh, you know, they asked if I was bored. No, um, they, <laughs> uh, they were pretty understanding, actually, because we knew a bunch of information that we couldn't put in the paper yet. We knew things that uh, were out there that we couldn't bring up in interviewing other people. But what my source told me to do from that first conversation was to call up the Port Authority and ask an innocent question and see if they lie to you about what's going on. Um, and the statement they gave back to us was a lie. was not true.
1: What was the statement that you received back from the Port Authority?
5: basically saying that there had been a a traffic safety study conducted um, and that everyone involved had been informed. We knew everyone involved hadn't been informed. Um, Bill Baroni's testimony to the legislature would later say nothing about traffic safety at all. The rationale had changed.
1: And, And then when you asked for a comment from Governor Christie, you received a statement from the governor's spokesman, Michael Druniak, that said, For goodness sake, the governor of the state of New Jersey does not involve himself in traffic surveys.
5: By the time we got that one, which was, I think, a few days or maybe even weeks into it, the first time we got that message, it wasn't going to put us off of anything because there was clearly something bigger happening.
3: When you got that response from Druniak, was it clear to you that he was avoiding answering your question about whether the
6: governor knew? No, no. I mean, you know, it was typical Mike Druniak. I mean, it was definitely sarcastic and made sense to make you feel stupid i mean he was he's very good at um being belittling, you know, beyond that email, definitely made it known to me that I was, it was ridiculous that I was asking such a question.
3: Well, I mean, one of the things we certainly learned at the trial was that that mm-hmm. belittling started mm-hmm. at the top. I mean, this is, you know, beyond question. Witness after witness talked about the belittling, the bullying, the, you know, making people feel bad, making people feel afraid right. for their jobs. And uh, I do want to
6: still mention the one thing I am still waiting for my apology. <laughs> oh, I was going to
2: ask. Yeah, did you? Well, you were supposed to apologize to him. I hope you have, Heather.
6: So this was um, where I asked the governor to comment on David Wildstein and Bill Baroni getting uh, criminal attorneys to defend them. And Christie, this was the one time he really just tore into me in a public setting and definitely made me feel small, and said basically that I had no right to ask that question and that. You, referencing myself, you and your paper will apologize when the truth all comes out. I have not apologized, um, nor has the governor apologized to me.
1: Well, uh, Matt, you are uh, also uh, no stranger to being publicly belittled by the governor, Uh, most famously, of course, when you were attempting to ask a question about that traffic jam at the George Washington Bridge, and he said...
0: I worked the cones, actually, Uh, Matt. Unbeknownst to everybody, I was actually the guy out there. I was in overalls and a hat, so I wasn't... But I actually was the guy working the cones out there. You really are not serious.
1: So we've heard that before, but what is it like when the governor makes fun of you in in front of a room full of laughing uh, politicians
2: and audience members? Do you begin to doubt your reporting? Yeah, um... I would say it certainly can be intimidating, and I, I think that's part of how it's intended. The governor will display mockery most when he has an audience other than the press. In other words, when he does press conferences outside of the state house at public events and there are lots of people there who are supporters or who are attending some sort of bill signing ceremony and the people there support the bill. So it certainly can be intimidating because you're getting made fun of by a powerful person in front of a group of people and sometimes live on television. But it's also funny at times, to be honest. I mean, uh, he's a smack talker. That's his sense of humor. And it's also kind of mine. So I get it and I respond to it. And there have been times where he's made fun of me. And if you looked over at me, I'm laughing because I actually thought it was funny. What what I've come to realize, though, is uh, it's also more tactical than I think I previously had thought thoughts. You know, part of it is to maybe uh, scare away some tough questions. And to put that doubt in your mind of, yeah, why am I asking
1: this question? Of course, he wasn't out there moving the cones. I must be crazy.
2: Right. Like, why am I just listening to what these Democrats are saying? I'm just like a handmaiden for the Democrats, uh, which he's called us. And I'm just going up and asking him some questions just because the Democrats are making a big deal about it. And yeah, sure. It can make you think that it's not a real question, and maybe it makes you doubt whether or not it's a story.
1: Well, it's a testimony to all of the reporters here that uh, in the face of, of some of these responses, y- you never did uh, stop asking the questions.
6: It was all hands on deck, that's for sure. And uh, I don't think I need to tell you that it's um, it's sad that uh, GNY uh, won't be around anymore because... Uh, They really believed in this story, which was amazing.
3: It is a very sad historical turn of events that uh, Chris Christie is on the transition team and the greater New York section of the Wall Street Journal is no more, whether (laughs) you had to apologize or not to Chris Christie. Uh,
2: At least the Port Authority uh, was reformed, and at least that's all been fixed over there.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Uh, On both sides, right? In New York and New Jersey. Yeah, really great.
1: After everything that has happened, after the trial, it it keeps coming back to this question. Did Governor Christie know about the plot to punish Mayor Sokolich before and or during the lane closures? Matt Katz?
2: My hunch is that he did not know before, that he had a hint of it during, and he definitely knew during the cover-up period when he was telling us nobody in his administration was involved.
1: Tom Moran, you want to jump in on that?
2: Yeah, I would just
4: work backwards and say there's no question after hearing this testimony. Five people testified he knew about this when he said he was blindsided before that, including three close allies of his. So I don't think there's any question to me that he lied to us about this. I do think there's a big question about whether he directed it or knew about it while it was going on. Sean? Yeah, I mean, I, I always separate this uh, between a legal question, a
0: political question. The political, the the evidence that he lied, and and this as a political demerit is huge, overwhelming, and insurmountable. Uh, the legal question, I think, is a much tougher call, and and I didn't see compelling evidence to to make a, a legal case against him.
3: I mean, legally, the evidence that Bridget Kelly presented at trial that she spoke to Christie beforehand was uncontradicted. Uh, She was not cross-examined on did she tell Christie before, so there's nothing to contradict what she said that she told him and she told Kevin O'Dowd, his chief of staff. All three of the defendants, including David Wildstein, said they told Christie about it while it was happening, also not cross-examined, also unchallenged in the court.
5: These are people who didn't think they were going to get caught, and when they didn't think they were going to get caught, they weren't weeping and they weren't appealing to you to consider their backgrounds in public service, and they weren't uh, you know, actually studying the equity of how traffic lanes are distributed. They were speaking very nastily about their fellow human beings, and they were doing things that they would never justify in the light of day. And it doesn't really matter if a voter in Iowa ultimately cared or not uh, about a traffic jam in New Jersey. Um, all that matters is the people who cover the traffic jam in New Jersey and the agency that caused it um, just continue to fight to get to the bottom of the story for as long as it takes.
1: Well, that's going to have to wrap up our coverage of the Bridgegate trial and the Bridgegate saga here on the podcast. Thank you for listening. And thanks uh, to all of our guests today. Sean Boberg, uh, now with The Washington Post, Heather Haddon and Ted Mann with The Wall Street Journal, Tom Moran with The Star-Ledger and, of course, WNYC's Matt Katz. And Andrea Bernstein. Thanks all.
3: Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. David. Thank you, First Amendment people.
2: Thanks for having me. And thank you, David, for getting us together for this little reunion.
3: Maybe we can get together in a diner next time.
2: So last week, we asked you to
1: send in your Bridgegate questions, and we have uh, heard from a number of you. So we're going to do a whole show uh, just to answer your questions. We're going to get to those in what uh, may be a final edition of the podcast next week. Meanwhile, if uh, you would like to send in a question for Matt and Andrea to answer, call us with your question about Bridgegate. The number to call is 402-413-WNYC. That's 402-413-9692. Leave your question, leave your name if you like, and uh, we may play your question on the podcast next week. The Christy Tracker Podcast is a production of WNYC and New Jersey Public Radio. Our theme music is by 29-Hour Music People. You can like us on Facebook, follow Matt Katz at MattKatz00, that is Matt, K-A-T-Z, and Andrea Bernstein at Andrea WNYC. I'm David Furst, and Governor, you had a chance to speak on WPG Talk Radio in New Jersey this week. What are your thoughts on your chances for a role in the Trump administration? No
0: matter what he decides, we're going to be friends. And as I was there to help him during the campaign, I'll be there to help him as president.